0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: As uh, we talked about yesterday, with the events uh, of this past weekend at Albion Falls gaining even more attention now, an emergency meeting is being held to deal with those issues. Now, I understand that uh, that some of the problems that have been talked about at Albion also are problems in other waterfall areas. But it just seems that for one reason or another, the uh, the focus on the bigger crowds and uh, the greater number of incidents seem to be occurring at Albion. Tom Jackson is the councillor uh, up in Ward 6 on the East Mountain. Uh, he's going to tour the falls with representatives of the city and emergency services. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk to us about uh, what they hope to accomplish. Councillor Jackson, thank you for joining us on the program this morning.
0: Bill, it's not too often that an issue at City Hall has me feeling both sad, angry, and baffled all at the same time, but Albion Falls has.
1: Well, this is not a new issue, Tom. As long as you've been on City Council, there's always a concern about safety issues, and, and we get that, but... Uh, what's going on i mean from from what you have talked to staff about what you have seen up there it it just seems that it, in the last two or three years in particular tom whatever has been happening here has just accelerated at, at a ridiculous pace and and now we've got a troubled area
0: bill it's um i call it if you will a nice problem to have and i want to i'll focus quickly on the positive the nice part is that People are discovering the majesty and beauty of our city like I'll say never before. I mean, I was there Saturday evening when the fire chief called me uh, to the three rope rescues and the one that sadly, tragically led to the death of the person from outside our area. And when I stood around the area of where the rescue had occurred, I just shook my head. And I'll tell you... It's great to see the popularity of these uh, majestic uh, panoramic areas of our city being explored by many Hamiltonians and visitors to our great city and all the great economic spinoffs, offs cetera, that come with that. But I call it a nice problem, and that has created, with the increased number of visitors, it's created this new challenge for us, this new set of problems. And, and I had a bill, ironically, on if I could just quickly take you back last summer, I had it, I called it an all players meeting of various department heads and conservation authority people at the in my boardroom at City Hall last summer. Fast forward this past June 2nd about a week and a half ago and ironically before the 60-year-old woman was rescued the next day on Saturday June 3rd but on Friday June 2nd I had set up for weeks an all players meeting reconvening the same group the brains around the table from risk management parks conservation all the emergency services municipal law people and uh, communications as well just to get ready for this summer and, you know, what we need to do, greater uh, interim measures, communication. We've put out promotional videos. The last couple of years, Bill, we put up new directional signage right at the base of the falls there, at the top of the falls on, on the brow, right across from the Arbor Road parking lot. As you know, Bill, about 10, 11 years ago, we spent a half a million dollars to build those two beautiful lookout platforms, over the parking lot that has the Heritage Stone right above Albion Falls, so you can have a gorgeous look. And on Saturday evening, I stood there around the area where the rescues occurred, and then yesterday, I was just kind of walking there myself, uh, when it was a little calm, and, and just a few people, and I looked from the lookout platform, Bill, and I saw four people... On the, on, the, on the flat rock, the very bottom rock below the, the, the powerful rush of where the falls comes down and crashes down, I saw four people standing on that flat rock bed where it's slippery. How they got down there, it's a steep decline. How they're going to get back up. So Bill, it's caused us now to ramp up um, the, um, the, um, the, 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 the thought process, the brainstorming And if we've got to do some interim measures, Bill, that uh, things like, and and my my office had called uh, an emergency meeting for Friday, June 23rd, but we're brainstorming between now and then. And one thing I've asked the fire chief and the police chief to do, which they're putting together the data over the last four or five years, I want to pinpoint, if we can, if there's a pattern as to where these occurrences are happening a little more regularly, and I'm speaking site-specific at Albion Falls. As you know, Bill, this is a citywide issue. Tues, Webster, Spencer Gorge, Devil's Punch Bowl, other areas have had their own occurrences. But I'm site-specific right now with Albion, and in light of, the sadly, the recent incidents over the last two weekends. So I've asked the data, I've asked the, the two chiefs to put together on a map that we can see when we get together and do the site tour on June 23rd, Is there a pattern, is there a specific area where we need to really target and put up, like do we need to put up additional fencing bill, like a chain link fencing around a certain area that cordons off it? Uh, Do I need to, some of the brains around the table came up with um, some ideas of maybe we need to put some more impactful signage. Right now we have the elegant kind of directional signage, go up this way, go down that way for your picnic, things like that. Maybe we need to put more what we call what we're calling shock signs. Another yeah, but Tom,
1: is that really going to work? I I, I know hypothetically it sounds good, but but listen, you when you when I was a kid, we used to hang around there. Uh, You know, I I talked to hundreds of people that have said, "Yeah, we used to go there all the time." The falls hasn't changed in the last three thousand years. I mean, it is what it is. Exactly. Uh, What's changed is human behavior. And and how do you how do you put signs up to say, "Don't be reckless."
0: Well, Bill, again, the type of shock signage, and again, this is just brainstorming an idea, Bill. Uh, for example, like at certain points where the rescues have occurred more regularly, maybe big octagonal uh, stop-type signs that have danger, X number of deaths have occurred at this point, something like that, Bill. Maybe we get into the trespassing bylaw as well at a certain point around the falls, too. That, you know how our bylaws have signs that say, you know, no parking, fine can be, X number of dollars. I don't want, I, I right now, short of putting up massive barricades, which I don't want to do, Bill, because again, back, getting back to the positive, people are coming and the overwhelming majority of people are exploring and enjoying safely, properly, cautiously, carefully. And I don't want to put up deterrence or impediments to people visiting our city and enjoying the beautiful parts of our city. So for the responsible ones, Bill, I want to make sure access is, safe access is available. But obviously I've got some risk takers, some thrill seekers, some people that are just throwing caution to the wind. And it's a matter of what measures we can take, Bill, to address that because I just it, it, I'm trying to strike a proper balance without eventually legislating behavior, Bill, because you're right. Well,
1: you can't legislate behavior. I,
0: exactly. It's coming down to that, though, Bill, and I don't want to go down that path.
1: You know, this is very similar. As as I was reading these stories and, and your reaction to it uh, over the last 48 hours or so, uh, Tom, uh, to the debate you've got uh, council still, I guess, doing right now with the Red Hill and, and the link and the traffic problems and the concerns of the fatalities there. Yes. And 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 you know my stance on that. I still think there are some things you could be doing with the roadway itself, like a barrier between the the two sets of lanes. I, I still think is a, is a must. But be that as it might, mm-hmm. you still can't legislate against people that are acting like idiots. I've seen the shock signs. Look at when I go up to Collingwood. Just when you get past uh, Highway Nine on Airport Road, okay. there's a great big yellow sign there that says there've been 345 deaths on this road in the last six years all right, because of all the... And you think that would make people pause and think, I better be. still idiots pass on the double lane, and still they pass on hills. They don't give a damn because they think it's not going to happen to them, and they feel this sense of entitlement. And and with all due respect to the people that have been injured and even the fatalities, uh, people have got to start taking control of their own actions and take responsibility for them.
0: I fully agree, Bill. And again, Bill, I, I, I'm open to you and your listeners for ideas. In the last 48, 72 hours... I've had a number of constituents and people across the city suggesting ideas to me right across the whole spectrum. And I just, I don't want to just sit back complacently, Bill, on our laurels and just say, well, unfortunately, with the thousands upon thousands, the increased number of visitors, uh, this tiny, tiny minority of slip falls rescues are going to occur, Tom. You know, when you put the formula together, a small, tiny percentage is going to happen. Nothing you can do, Tom. Well, Bill, I'm not at that point. It's a work in progress, and there's got, if there's more measures that we can take, I, w- I think we need to at least think about them and see what we can do to install them. And again, right now at the top of the parking lot, as you know, Bill, I've got three parking lots there. I've got the one at the end of Mud Street where it dead ends now, right above the uh, Red Hill Valley trails there at Pritchard. I've got the big parking lot on Arbor Road right across from that open area of the falls where you can cross Mount Brow Boulevard, and we've got the parking lot at the top as well overlooking the falls. Bill, I've even got signs in certain areas that say "poison ivy beyond this point." You would think that that would be a deterrent, and it's who wants to get poison ivy. But again, where I've seen some spots that the that the emergency people have shown me where they've gone, it's even gone into areas like that. So maybe, Bill, we can do greater marking of our trails. That's another uh, thought and a suggestion that came out from from the uh, department heads and that maybe there's opportunities to do some greater stronger marking of the actual trails that are endorsed by the city to use safely at the top of the lookout platforms where they are built for people to safely view and enjoy and sit with benches that's where the current fencing if you will stops maybe i've got to hook up the fencing along the top of the brow when we redid Mountain Brow Boulevard, reconstructed it about five, six years ago with new sidewalks and a new rail at the top of the falls overlooking them. Maybe I've got to extend that, maybe a six, seven uh, foot chain link fence bill to uh, extend that. And I know, listen, I know that people off. are
1: going to get upset about that. And, and as you mentioned, the overwhelming majority of people that go and enjoy the falls are doing what they're supposed to do and they're paying attention to the rules. But but it, how do you legislate or how do you do something for the people that are going to hop those fences and and you know we were talking earlier you know my wife's family lives over by the devil's punch bowl yes. and and that's a magnificent view and I love standing up there looking over the city there are some people as I've been told that actually get on the other side of the fence that you've already put up there because they want to have this picture for Facebook on so, uh, you know come on people if you're going to be like that. And there's going to be a cost to the city. Sadly, there's the cost of the rope rescues. There's the cost of crews having to go down there. You mentioned just the other day you saw some people down at the bottom. That's trespassing. They're not supposed to be down there. Exactly, you know, no. I know city council said, well, we're not going to pay for the rope rescues. We're not going to charge people. Like at some point, there's going to have to be some punitive action here. It seems to be the only way that you're going to find anything that's going to make people think twice about doing something.
0: Well, Bill, again, all ideas are on the table. As you know, the fire chief a few months ago, you're correct, he reported uh, to ECS committee at that time, which I'm on. At that time, he said he was not recommending at this time to charge any uh, fee for a rope rescue. I mean, we are just so blessed in this community. Our responders are second to none, and they're trained to do this. And I've always felt that if they're on their 12, 24-hour shifts, whether they get called to a house fire or whether they call, get called to a rope rescue. I mean, somebody could say, you know, a guy who left a lit cigarette in his house uh, very carelessly who caused the house fire, one could say, geez, you know, the responders, it's too bad they had to respond to that because it could have been avoidable and preventable. So I'm just kind of reluctant to go down that road. I currently agree with the fire chief who publicly reported not to charge at this time, but maybe there's trespassing fines we can do. Uh, you know, a uh, greater public awareness and education campaigns, Bill. Maybe we've got to have some bylaw officers on the busiest of weekends. which the gorgeous weather? <clears throat> excuse me, is excuse me is bringing out. Maybe we've got to have some bylaw officers, just even for a first few weekends, uh, patrolling, just kind of walking the area to make sure people are going past a certain dangerous point. Bill, at the top of the brow, I've got. At certain points, I've got use at own risk. Do not go beyond this point. Uh, Bill, that's what's caused me to be so baffled by the mentality of certain people. But I guess people today want to get as close to Mother Nature as they can And they want to explore, but they're putting their lives at risk. I'm reaching a point where I have to protect them from themselves.
1: Well, and that may well be what has to happen at this stage. And and it may take some bold action by city council to do something like this. The reason they're hopping the fences, the reason they're going out on those dangerous ledges is because they can. And they know that nobody's going to stop them. And even if somebody does point it out to them, what are they going to do to them? What, you know, that there's, there's sometimes, and I'm, I'm not one of these, you know, let's, let's drag these people away and change. I'm not suggesting that at all. No. But there are people here who are taking undue risks, and they're putting themselves and others in danger as a result. Now, And I don't know what happened on Saturday. It's sad that there was a tragic death. Correct. But look, there, there is one statement of fact that we can say. Some of those people that have been involved in these shouldn't have been where they were. And, and are, Okay, so let's let's deal with it from that issue and say, how can we stop them from getting to those places where they're putting themselves in, in potential danger?
0: A long-term project I have, Bill, when I say long-term, I'm hoping over the next year, two or three, depending on capital budget, it's not going to solve the problem right now. But in light of all the, the increased interest of people trying to get as close to the water as possible, similar to Niagara Falls, Bill, where they've got a built gorge that goes as far as it can, where people can walk it, get close, but at a certain point, there is definitely no way you cannot go any further. I'm looking at that type of capital project, similar to the lookout platforms, but something maybe right off the brow there that gets people closer. City built, too code, to standard, but uh, is a structure and a pathway built safely enough that gets people closer, and at a certain point, they definitely can't go beyond That's a little project that I have in the works right now with the Parks Department.
1: Well, something's got to come, and something's got to be done, because we're just getting into the season. And, and I get your point here, Tom. Uh, you know, we've been advocating for years, you know, to to to, to market the, the waterfalls. We, the we are the city of waterfalls. Film. And, you know, the work that the city staff have done, and, of course, our good friend Chris Eklund for many, many years to to get this up and running. And that's great that people are finally buying into this, and they're using this, and they're visiting these facilities. But for God's sakes, you've got to use a little common sense and stay on the other side of the fence. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's there's... Common sense here, there are fencing set up, there are signage put up there. People know damn well that they're taking risks. And and I don't know if it's because of the selfie craze, I don't know what's going on here, but they're putting themselves in danger. And you're right, the city is going to have to at some point decide, do we need to protect those people from themselves?
0: Well, Bill, I'm also there's also the component of ensuring that the corporation is seen to be doing everything possible, Because, Bill, I'm also thinking of taxpayers generally down the road. And you probably can read between the lines of what I'm saying. When there's payout for incidents regarding a school crossing guard issue of millions of dollars, when there's a toboggan issue. So I'm also thinking of, corporately, the taxpayers down the road. And my point being, Bill, with the brains I have around the table and in collaboration with the Conservation Authority, I believe not only we've got to try to do additional measures, but maybe be seen as well, as much as possible, to implement additional measures without putting in impediments to the overwhelming majority viewing public that's doing it safely.
1: Tom, we'll certainly stay in touch uh, over the next few days as you continue with these meetings. Thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Councillor Tom Jackson, of course, uh, from uh, Ward 6 up in the East Mountain, uh, trying to find some solutions uh, to the tragedies and the injuries that are occurring at our waterfalls. It's not that complicated. You just have to get people to start thinking and obey the rules. Mind you, that might be the biggest challenge of all. You're listening to
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: We are going to talk about this the story that I was mentioning just before the break here about the predicted demise of uh, car dealerships uh, and because and, that's important stuff. But uh, like Zach Clariss of the Tiger Cats, I'm going to call an audible on the line here because there's another story that uh, just came to our attention just a couple of hours ago, you've heard here on CHML News, and that is the uh, woeful condition of Sears, Canada. They're supposed to have their uh, AGM, I guess, yes, tomorrow. They've canceled that, and uh, there's some pretty dire predictions about their future. So to cover both stories, uh, we'll start with the Sears story. Uh, we're pleased to welcome, of course, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today?
2: Well, I'm fine, thank you, Bill. I got trapped in a little Hamilton rush hour traffic, so my apologies for delaying things.
1: Not a problem at all. Glad you could join us here today. Listen, before we get into the car thing, let's let's sure. delve into Sears and, and and what's going on with them right now. And you, of course, being the, uh, the sage predictor of all things uh, economical, uh, about a year ago, I remember a conversation you and I had where you said, "Look at this is going to happen sooner than later with Sears," and and I don't want to you know predict dire circumstances here, but it's looking pretty bleak for this company right now.
2: Mm-hmm. So, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about two Sears. I'd like to talk about both the American sure, yeah. Sears and the Canadian Sears because both of them made announcements today. Now, in the United States, Sears has not made a profit for six consecutive years today they announced they were laying off another 400 people. That was at their head offices in, I think it's Illinois or Indiana. Uh, They they claim they're trying to find a billion dollars, a billion dollars in cost savings in their operations, but it was just March where they said they weren't sure they could even survive until Christmas time. Now, this is the American company because of just how bad things were doing. It had gotten so bad in the United States that people who sent them product, we call those people suppliers, weren't prepared to even give them credit. So it was cash on delivery. If I send you some washing machines, pay me now. Don't pay me when you sell them in a few weeks. Pay me right now. And, and I really think that the Sears is putting a very good face on it in the United States. I, I would really be surprised if Sears in the United States is still here by Christmas time. It, it, the spiral is just so deep and so bad, I don't see a way to reverse it. Now, Canada's in a little different situation. Sears Canada uh, has done better on balance. Its biggest problem, it seems to me, has been going through CEOs, people who run the company. They went through three CEOs, and I think it was a 24-month period. Each CEO came in with a plan to turn it around, but before they could get much implemented, they were ripped away, and somebody else came in and took it from there. In fact, it was just about uh, six weeks ago that Sears up at Lime Ridge Mall revealed its new design. They'd come up with a new store designed for it, and it remodeled the store, but what they announced today was they felt they only had enough operating cash for 12 months. So a couple of things either have to happen. Either those last, this most recent plan has to work and sales have to start to rebound, and if so, they can survive and keep going. But if there's any hiccup whatsoever, there's no extra cash left in the till to balance the books. So the second possibility is to try to find a white knight, and that's really what they announced today, is that they are certainly prepared to look at selling the organization to someone, anyone who might be interested in buying them, but if they can't sell them and this most recent plan doesn't work, then it, too, is circling the drain and, unfortunately, might get through Christmas this year but probably won't be here by Christmas of 2018.
1: This is one of these iconic businesses that, uh, you know, for those of us that grew up around these, like the old Sears store down at the Center Mall and, and right. you know, even before Lime Ridge was built, you know, thought these places are going to be around forever. What happened?
2: Well, a couple of things. One is that as consumers today, we we prefer specialty stores. So Sears is the last of the general retail stores. You can go in there and get just about anything from soup to nuts. And today, if I'm looking for golf clubs, well, I'm going to go to a golf club specialty store. If I'm going for appliances. I want an appliance specialty store. If I'm looking for clothing, I'll go to a clothing specialty store. And and the general store just doesn't seem to work. Now, where it has worked, and that's the case of the Bay, the Bay seems to be doing much better than Sears, is that they moved upscale. And so they brought you brands, specialty brands in their store that you couldn't get anywhere else. And they treated them like a series of little boutiques within the store. But Sears is more downstream from there. They're more mainstream, if you will, uh, good Good quality stuff, you remember, like Craftsman tools and oh, yeah. more appliances. And for kids, Roughskins, I think was the brand they had, Roughskins, jeans for kids. Nothing high fashion about it at all, just good sturdy stuff. Well, Walmart came at them from the bottom, uh, and they, there just wasn't enough room in there for them to keep competing in that segment. They've tried a couple of things to move upscale a bit, but you know they are so associated with that area, that area in the retail space, that they have just found it very hard to move. I think had the first CEO had his or her way five years ago, and could do that turnaround, then we might be talking about a different company. But that flipping of CEOs and never really finishing a strategy—that's really what's doomed them.
1: But is there a, any room at all in in that uh, you know that that paradigm of of uh, of you know economic th- stuff? Where we like, you want that kind of a store? I mean, mm-hmm. as you say, the Bay's already done that. They've kind of separated out their houseware stuff, and they've got a separate store for that now. And and you're right. I mean, going into the bay right now is uh, is akin to going on Bloor Street to shop. It's high end stuff, and you you know you're going to pay a little bit more, but you're going to get great quality for it. Uh, Sears doesn't really have, have much of an opportunity here to brand themselves, or maybe more importantly to rebrand themselves, and a lot of us, I guess, are as consumers are still looking at it and saying, well, it's the same Sears as 30 years ago, and maybe it is to them.
2: <laughs> and it is in many ways. So uh, you ask if there's room. There is more room today than there was three years ago because Target came and Target left, and Target also competed in that space. I should point out to those people who are listening to us that Target, while it left Canada, is still a viable operation in the United States. So the fact that you have uh, not only Sears in the United States, but you have Target, you have Walmart in that space says there's probably room for a second retailer, but you've got to find a point of differentiation. You can't be Walmart because if that's all you are, people say, well, I can get Walmart at Walmart. I don't need Sears for that. They've got to find a way to position themselves. Now, there, there has been some talk of maybe trying to turn Sears into more of a home furnishing store. So focus more on the furniture and on the appliances. Get out of the clothing, get out of the, the fragrances, get out of the jewelry, get out of those sorts of things, and maybe survive as a Sears retail store who just sells uh, sofas, uh, big big comfortable chairs, and, and appliances. That may be a future for it. Uh, I, I haven't heard their most recent sermon from the Mount on what they might do, but that seems to be about the one space they are competitive in.
1: Yeah, but that's uh, that's a bit of a gamble, too, because you've got the Brick and Leon's and other places that have you know specialized in that already.
2: Yes, yes it, absolutely. Lazy Boy, Corbet yeah. appliances, I mean, it goes on and on and on. But again, remember that the Kenmore brand seems to have validity you know i talk to people who who really swear by their kenmore appliances rather than buying the brand names the whirlpools what have you that way so there may be some space there for them the other possibility and this is not the canadian company but the american company is that it may cease being a retailer and and just sell some products uh, the craftsman line of tools now is available at other hardware stores and it does very well so there are some pieces of the old sears that are still surviving but as a retailer you know, it's now it's now that uh, fourth quarter, you're down to the last minute, you need that Hail Mary pass. If it gets caught, there's a way forward. If not, I'm afraid this this company in Canada anyway probably is gone by Christmas of 2018.
1: Well, and to your point about the reliability and, and maybe the, the mm-hmm. brand loyalty to things like Craftsman, I, I know that used to be the case, but I've heard an awful lot of skepticism from consumers lately that said, well, you know, the underpinning of of that whole thing was the fact that you could count on them. In other words, they backed it up. Okay, well, you can exchange that. You get your money back. And they're they're saying that's not quite as good as it used to be. So they've, they've got a lot of work to do if they want to get back in the game here.
2: Yeah, and Bill, maybe one other quick note. Uh, when you talk nostalgically about Sears, the other big nostalgia was, of course, the Sears catalog. Oh, yeah. Growing up with the Sears catalog. Well, catalog sales today have morphed into Internet sales, and we always thought that Sears was well-positioned to take advantage of that move to the Internet. You're already putting together a catalog. Rather than putting together a physical catalog, just put it together on the web, all the pretty pictures, put the download in. Uh, Sears, again, it was about six months ago that Sears and CAD opened a new fulfillment center, uh I wanna tell you it was in around Milton somewhere in that area. This was supposed to really help it with its orders and then we heard at Christmas time that they were having problems, that some things weren't being delivered, some things were being delivered four, five, six weeks late basically at Christmas time, you put under the under the tree, your package will arrive on January 10th. I haven't got it for you at this point. And that's been another big surprise, is that Sears, who should have easily transitioned into this Internet world, just so dropped the ball on it and, and didn't cash in on that catalog retailing. that would have been a logical thing, and yet somehow they dropped the ball on that.
1: Well, we'll uh, be tracking that story, obviously, to see how it goes. Let's let's get into the other story that we're going to get into here, this uh, idea that the car dealerships uh, may well be in. Uh, And and this is the result of a study from a a think group called Rethink X, an independent think tank out of San Francisco, uh, with a couple of uh, visionaries, we're told, that say, look at, you know, people are going to start going to electric cars, and once that happens, these dealerships are gone. I'm I'm skeptical about this.
2: (laughs) Well... Let me help you out with that skepticism. So God bless you for saying that Rethink is a, an independent think tank. Uh, this study was released the last week in May. It's authored by uh, an economist out of Stanford University, but his co-author is one of the founders of Airbnb. And people like Airbnb and Uber are big into of uh, uh, sort of disintegrating the existing structures of our society and building new structures. They, they really like that concept. This study is premised on about five things. Bill. Let me try to walk you through them quickly. The first, as you point out, is the prevalence and the growing prevalence of the electronic car. Uh, Why is that important? Well, an electric car only has about 20 moving pieces in it. A gas-driven automobile has about 2,000 moving pieces in it. So they believe that if we all went electric, we'd need a lot less uh, maintenance of our cars because there's fewer things to break down. Therefore, oh, our need to go to the dealership goes down. Number two, uh, batteries. Right now, an electric car goes about 300 kilometers between charges. Now, that would be a problem for me. I have relatives in the London, Ontario area, and if I drove down to London, I might not get back to the Hamilton area on one charge, and then if I have to stop and get charged, it takes roughly six to eight hours to charge the battery to do 300 kilometers. So they believe that there's new battery technology that's going to come out in the next couple of years that will get us to somewhere around 700 kilometers on a charge. And also they believe that the recharging technology is going to improve so that you can recharge your batteries in 15 minutes. Uh, and then finally in all of this is the idea that uh, those cars, that those electric cars, because they have so few moving pieces and the way they're now designing them, will stay on the road not for 100,000 kilometers or 200,000 kilometers, but for a million kilometers. And I'm sorry, there is one more, and that is the autonomous driving part of this, that in the future, you and I will not be doing as much intervention. The car will, in essence, drive itself. If you put all of those pieces together in your thinking hat, they say, looking out, I don't see the dealerships surviving. And God bless them, they're looking out, they say, seven to eight years. I don't see any of these things happening this quickly. Yes, I know we're working on better batteries, and I think we'll continue to have better batteries, but the recharging dilemma, I've not seen any significant progress on that. In terms of where we're going to buy our cars, they also argue the why dealerships will go is that we'll buy them online. Why go to a dealership? I can just go online and order one and it will be delivered to my house. Well, you know, we've been in taught, we've been ingrained to go to dealerships. I don't think that's going to disappear all that quickly. And then again, they're forgetting that we all have gas cars today, I'm not going to throw my car out in two years. It's only going to be four years old at that point and rush to buy an electric car. So I don't see dealers going the way of the dodo quickly. Now, maybe 20 years from now, well, yes if all of those things come together, we may not de- need dealerships the same way, just like we may not need gasoline powered cars, but there's a lot of ifs in that chain, Bill, to make all of those things come together. I'd need to see a lot more proof that that's going to happen before I can jump on board with this document.
1: Well, and the other element to this, too, that uh, that you've been mentioning here is that I, I just don't see that there's that much of a buy-in. And that's not to suggest that, you know, notwithstanding Trump and some of the Luddites down in, in, in Washington right now that are, are denying the Paris and everything else. I, I, I understand that we have to look forward, and that's that's part of this whole process. But I don't see this rush all of a sudden for electric cars. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, the, the halfway point for that, of course, between the, the fossil fuels and, and the electric was the hybrid. And you saw those predictions, you know, a few years when those things were introduced. Mm-hmm. They said, that oh, by 2020, half the people on the road are going to be driving hybrids. Well, apparently it's less than 1%. Uh, and that's not because they're not bad, not because it's lousy technology. It, they just haven't caught on to the point where people thought they were going to at this stage.
2: Right. And so these these nice people who, who wrote this paper believe that we'll hit some sort of, we call it a tipping point or a turning point where it will become popular enough uh, that we, we, we won't even have the other cars. So the example I can give you would be CDs. We used to always play everything on vinyl. Suddenly CDs came out in a period of 18 months, revolutionized the recording industry. We virtually made vinyl disappear, and we all rushed to CDs. And of course now we don't even bother with CDs. We get the little digital bytes and we download it on the internet. So you know, is it possible? Yes, what they're talking about is possible, but I'm questioning the probability of it all happening. I just haven't seen it happen yet. Now, I have seen some Tesla on the road here in Hamilton. I've talked to some owners of Tesla's and they love their vehicles. I'm just not sure, though, we're at that turning point or tipping point. And for me... The problem is simply the distance I can drive on a charge. If I wanted to drive down to um, or drive over to uh, Oshawa or I wanted to head to Kingston for the day, gosh, I don't think I can get to Kingston and back on a charge. I really need the batteries to mimic our current gasoline tanks, which typically get us 750, 800 kilometers before a refill. And then number two, when I do have to refill, I need a relatively speedy refill, I'm not necessarily opposed to plugging in the car and going in and buying a cup of coffee or a soft drink and coming back and it's charged. I don't have to have it be you know, a two-minute refill. It could take a five-minute refill or a 10, but it can't be four hours. And those are the two big sticking points at this point. Maybe a third bill that we haven't talked about is, is of course, electricity itself. Yeah. You know, right now in Ontario, we've had great debates about the cost of electricity. I, I need someone to actually do the calculation and talk to me about, well, what's it going to, what's it going to take to, quote, film. My tank with electricity, uh, given uh, where we are with gasoline prices, there is an argument in their article as well that gasoline is going to get cheaper well so if gasoline goes down to twenty five dollars a barrel from today around forty forty five dollars a barrel. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be more of an incentive to keep your gas-powered car before investing in something new? So, I, I mean, I like their article in the sense that it gets us talking about these kinds of things, but I, I think they're looking through the world with very rose-colored glasses at this point.
1: Well, there's another element to this, and we've seen this, and I think you and I have discussed this when it comes to public transit, not just here in Hamilton, but in every place else. Anybody who says that, well, we're going to force people to, for- to use this, we're going to force them out of their cars into public transit, it doesn't work. Uh, It has to be, A, reliable and B, affordable for people to say, yeah, you know what, that's a better alternative for me. And even then, there are still people that are going to cling to this. We're not all going to run to electric cars just because the government says you're going to have to. It's not going to work. There will be resistance and pushback on this, and and I just I think this is accelerating things. If excuse the bad metaphor here, uh, to to try to you know improve this technology, to try to shine a positive light on this technology. It's not convenient for us right now for all the reasons you've outlined, and one of them is still travel. That's as great if you're just going from the mountain down to the east end of the city, but if you want to go to Collingwood or to Toronto or to wherever. This is not practical. We're not there yet, and I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon.
2: One other quick note about this study, Bill, is they they seem to be lumping all electronic technology into one, meaning that you and I won't need all of these dealerships because we'll just buy, quote, the electric car. Well, today we have the gasoline car, but we've got 20 different models of gasoline cars. You know, General Motors, Ford, Toyota, Honda, Mercedes... I still think we're going to have dealerships offering different models, styles, designs of electric cars. And thus, while dealerships may morph, there may not be as many repair jobs. Maybe we will do more buying over the Internet. Uh, I I still think we're going to have dealerships. I I can give you another bias then to that study. It's a very urban-based study. They're really imagining the city dweller. City dwellers today, like in Toronto, so many of them don't even have a car. They simply lease a car when they need it. If we have a future of self-driven cars, maybe I'll just call up a service and the car will drive me someplace. Well, that's a lovely urban view of the world but hamilton's a suburban city we just don't have that ability to get from ancaster to downtown without a car of some sort generally speaking and i don't see that changing so where the car dealership of today may morph into electronic dealership of tomorrow i think ford gm all of these companies are watching this technology closely and they'll they'll be the ones moving but the dealership will remain is the structure of the dealership will change
1: marvin Ryder at the DeGroote school of business thanks as always marvin
0: My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The
1: LRT issue is not going away. I I know the council had their vote a few weeks ago there to send off the environmental assessment to Queen's Park, and, and you feel the process is starting to unfold, and people are feeling pretty confident. But opponents of the project are not giving up and are looking at options to challenge the project. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a, a move afoot that we're going to talk about in just a couple of seconds. It was uncovered by uh, John Best in the Bay Observer in the most recent edition uh, that talks about maybe a glitch with the ins- assessment itself, the environmental assessment itself, uh, which could present some problems for those. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hey, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Good. Uh, interesting read in the Bay Observer this week. Talk to us a little bit about the story and how it, it, uh, it uh, came about.
3: Well, uh I you know, like everybody else, I've been I've been looking at this uh LRT issue for quite a while. Yeah,
1: but you actually read the documents.
3: Well, uh <laughs> I I'm not even going to say I read the the full documents. I I um actually printed off uh the 2011 EA and the uh the 2017 EA and um I, at least I printed off the portions that I, you know, I didn't get into the flora and fauna stuff because I assumed that they knew what they were talking about in those areas. Uh, but so I'm looking at the twenty seven EA and I see it being described as essentially an update on the 2011 EA. Yeah,
1: I heard that that characterization.
3: Yeah. So the, you know, I, I guess I had just assumed that the 2017 EA was the EA. Uh, that was being voted upon, and, and certainly it was presented to council as an absolute necessity if the project wasn't going to be stopped. Uh, so, so then I got curious about the 2011 EA, and uh, so I pulled it out and, and looked at it, and, and then I went to that list. You remember uh, staff uh, were asked to, bring, you, you know, how there's this talk about the I don't know how what the number is now, but it was 52 opportunities for council to vote on on the uh, yeah collect. somewhat yeah.
1: i forget the number but because it, 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 it was up. it was a high number yeah
3: yeah big number so so staff at that time were requested to uh, present a list of of all the various steps where council had voted on various aspects of the project so i went back to that list and and you see, go into the fall of 2011 when this thing was submitted there's nothing there uh, no reference to council you know a presentation of the document to council and certainly no vote so th- then i asked the question to staff and and in a couple of days the answer came back and it was well actually no um it it, it wasn't presented to s- uh, council per se uh it wasn't presented at all and uh, and it wasn't voted upon so you know i i made mention of it uh you know it's I, it's uh, it's baffling to me how the update, the addendum to a document can be seen as absolutely critical, and the document itself it was okay to submit it, uh, apparently, without Council's uh, knowledge.
1: Let's put this in, in perspective, as you mentioned in the piece on the Bay Observer as well. Uh, we go back to 2011, and if memory serves, and God knows there were so many dates and, and announcements and non-announcements about this thing, John, uh, 2011 predates the funding announcement, doesn't it?
3: Oh, absolutely.
1: The That's funding okay. announcement
3: was in in May of 2015, and uh, but but the political climate in 2011 was was this. Uh, Bob Rutina was uh, now into his first year. He was uh, three. Qu- this, this was submitted in the fall of 2011, so he'd be you know finishing up his first year, and he'd certainly expressed a, a skeptical view about LRT and and said that he wanted to put his focus on GO. Uh, At the same time, around July of that year, um, Chris Murray, the uh, city manager, had had shut down that LRT office.
1: That's right. I remember that.
3: So so in that political climate, somebody at the staff level apparently still felt um, that they could go forward with uh, submitting an E.A., and uh you know that's a pretty significant step in a uh, you know I it's impossible for me to believe that that the submission of that was was an oversight that that's a major step in any capital project uh, the submission of the EA and the fact that that went through without counsel's knowledge, I, I I don't think you can.
1: Well, here's what here's what your piece did to me. I, I mean, it, it raised issues for me from and and part of this is process, and I know that can be rather mundane. And you know, sure. some people just do the old eye roll. And, oh, here we go with process again. Yep. But but if the 2017 EA or addendum to it now, as we as that's been characterized was so important and this project couldn't move forward and council had to make a decision on this. I mean, we all know the drama that surrounded that and, and ultimately the vote that occurred. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened in 2011. Council never voted on this. So how could that process, apparently the process move forward without council? Well, How I did asked, that happen? I
3: asked staff exactly that question, and the only answer I got back was, that uh, you know the difference is that now the project had funding and then it didn't. But I frankly, that's a distinction without a difference to me. Um, you know, they they were working away on developing the project, and it would have ultimately resulted in funding one way or the other. So uh, I, I don't think the fund, I think the funding issue is a bit of a red herring. Uh, the the process, the, the just the fact that that since the funding has been. Uh, announced. They're still accepting the 2011 EA more or less as is. So, you know, I, I think, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I think this this was not an accident.
1: This thing got passed. Right, look, I got to tell you something, and you've been following city council for many, many years uh, in various forms, and, and as I have obviously as a participant there for a number of years as well. On principle, whether you're for this project or against it, I can tell you right now, I know of a number of people on city council, that if they had heard that somebody on staff had moved a a, a a project of this nature or a document of this nature to another level for for advisement or whatever to move a process along without council consent, they would be apoplectic. I don't hear anybody saying anything about this now.
3: Well, maybe they haven't found out yet, Bill. Maybe they're just hearing about it now. I don't know, uh, but but uh, yeah, I share your view. Of that. You, you know the
1: old rowing and steering thing. You know yeah. that uh, you know it's up to the staff to do the rowing, and council's supposed to tell them which way to steer. And yeah. if nobody was steering them, then somebody was rowing on their own.
3: Well, that that's the whole other issue that that we really haven't dealt with, and and that is the uh, the the absolutely shameful way uh, that that council has behaved with this project. Uh, The majority of them, in my view, are really against the project, but nonetheless, um, you know, sort of nudging it along against a day when they might be able to, uh, you know, kill it later on. Uh, This playing chicken with the provincial government over whether they'd really get the 100% funding, Uh, just a shameful dereliction of duty by a number of councillors who I hear are now expressing themselves as being relieved that this LRT pressure is off them, but... Uh, I, I I think there's still an election coming up next year that that may provide some surprise uh, surprises before we're done. This is a extremely divisive issue in this community, as the as the forum poll showed. And uh, how, however you parse those numbers, it's clear that there's a large segment of this community that's got a serious problem with what's been done.
1: Well, if that's the characterization that, that some councillors are presenting right now, that the the worst is over. Uh, I've got some concerns because they don't seem to understand where they are or what this project's all about. Uh, even those that support this have to, I think, readily admit that there's a long way to go here, and 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 a number of if this is going to move forward, a number of of uh, of uh, benchmarks and posts, and and actually in some cases obstacles that they're going to have to overcome. This this is this is not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination, as you also wrote about in the article, because the uh, the no LRT group apparently is is mounting, uh, I guess, a counter offensive here
3: well they are and um i talked to eric tuck who's the head of the uh, amalgamated transit union they're they're not challenging this particular stage of the game but they do intend to um to to put up a very aggressive challenge if it turns out that this project is going to be run by a a, a private public partnership uh, which excludes the HSR and frankly that appears to be the plan i i don't see any discussion whatsoever of allowing the HSR to have anything to do with uh, with this new uh, LRT
1: system, yeah, and I've talked to Eric Tuck from uh, from ATU about that too, and I, I understand exactly where Eric's coming from. Uh, but uh, again, when I've talked to MetroLinks about this, they just said, "Well, we'll talk about that." And well, that's kind of like saying, you know, the check's in the mail. Uh, that's kind of putting off the discussion. Because uh, I, I know that in KW there's a situation that they'd like to replicate here, but KW is po- kicking in an awful lot of money towards this project, taxpayer money for this. That's not the case in Hamilton. And my guess is, and I, I don't have any more knowledge about this than you do, John, is that at the end of the day, Metrolinx is going to say it's our dime. We'll tell you who's going to run the thing.
3: That 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 appears to be the case. Like, we we keep hearing that there's negotiation going on uh, with Metrolinx, and I keep saying who's doing the negotiating, who's on our team, and and I don't think there is any negotiation. It's just waiting for fiats to come down. You know, just looking at this whole thing, the way the CEA kind of got slipped by council, it, it's part of a bigger pattern. Um, it, it, not much was made of it at the time, but there there was a situation, I think, again, around this 2011 period when somebody asked the question, how much has Hamilton spent on studies for LRT? and uh we knew you know the province gave us 3 million to use and and we thought i think most of us thought that that we were kicking in approximately 2 million as our share and then we find out that there's 3 or 4 million uh that was spent by the city that got buried in a roads budget so that it wouldn't stick out if it had been put in the transit budget what what it seems to suggest is that right from the beginning that uh, i don't want to say it's like a sleeper cell but there seems to have been uh, a very determined group within uh, the staff that that just kept on going regardless of um, the change in the election, and uh, you know, it's just uh, let's just keep keep our heads down and get this thing through as far as we can before somebody uh, catches up to us.
1: Well, and that bothered me, and I talked about that extensively on air back in the day. And notwithstanding my support for the the, the concept and the and the project in principle. Uh, I, I was very uncomfortable with the fact that some people on city staff uh, were basically running their own show, it just seemed, and paying very little to no attention about council directors or about anything else that was going on. Uh, many of those people are no longer involved in the project. Uh, some of them don't even work for the city anymore. But there was an attitude problem, I think, back in the early days of that project. And, and, and if that's what's driving some of the things that are going on right now, then uh, that's something that needs to be addressed, obviously.
3: Well, and... It- You know, back then, uh, there was the LRT office that that Chris Murray suspended. We have another LRT office now, uh, managed by Mr. Johnson. My comment about both of these LRT offices is that they mostly completely exclude anybody uh, from the HSR. And just the idea that we would proceed with a $1 billion project, almost not wanting to hear what the bus people might have to say, you know, it seems to me that there should have been, I know they'll tell you, yeah, there's a role, but you've seen the meetings, uh, the LRT meetings that we've had in the last year, and, uh, you know, the, the HSR management is not prominent. Uh, sometimes a question will come up and they have to go and look for the manager, and, uh, you know, clearly they're not in any way driving this process, and... You know, I, I I just question that that the only people that presumably have transit expertise are are so divorced from the project and have been in the earlier iteration as well.
1: Let me ask you. I got about a minute and a half, two minutes left here, John. Uh, about this uh, No LRT group, and we've talked with Carol Lysich, of course, uh, from uh, Gilberts, uh, who's who's involved in that group, as, as are many others, by the way. Uh, my understanding, according to the piece that you wrote in the Bay Observer, is that uh, instead of simply going to these public meetings, they're actually going to petition the uh, the minister themselves about their concerns. And uh, I guess, from what I'm told, that they've hired some some experts uh, to to try to, uh, I guess, add commentary to some of their concerns.
3: Uh, that I'm not I'm not clear on. Yeah, I, I
1: don't have confirmation of that, but that's what I've heard.
3: Uh I, I, I do believe that you know, the there is a twenty there is a thirty day comment period on this LRT that council voted on and that, that uh period is up somewhere towards the end of June and and so I do believe that there will be challenges on, on the basis of using the public commentary period as an opportunity to express an opinion. Uh you know, experts are expensive, uh lawyers are expensive, uh it's tough for a citizen group to, uh, uh, you know, come up against, uh, you know, the combined might of the province of Ontario and uh, the city, uh, which appears to have unlimited money to spend on, on studies and lawyers and so on. It's it's still pretty tough for uh, a community group. But, uh, you know, the, the EA process does allow for, uh, you know, community input, so... Interesting to see how that process unfolds.
1: Well, it reminded me uh, very much of uh, the the Lister Block debate that went on some years ago when Councillor Brian McCaddy uh, basically. ignored, I guess, a council directive. The council had already debated this, passed a motion, and he uh, wrote a letter directly to the minister involved, the heritage minister, I believe, at the time, uh, and actually begged her, and she, in fact, did intercede in that project and stalled it for another... uh, Now there's some provincial money that came into it. There's a number of different things on there. But, I mean, there is a way to do this. uh, And and for those that have already mapped out the process and say, okay, the end of June, that's over, now we can move on to this, uh, citizen groups can and have in the past made, uh, uh some sort of an impact on these projects. So I, I don't know, uh, who the people are that, uh, the new LRT people are talking to. I don't know what their presentation is going to look like. Uh, but there is a possibility that, uh, that, you know, this thing could get delayed and, and reassessed who knows what's going to happen.
3: Well, uh, I guess offsetting that is that the minister of the environment is, uh, Glenn Murray and he's got a lot of connections here in Hamilton, uh, both with the mayor and, uh, other uh, prominent community groups, so and certainly his bias is towards uh, LRT, so that's something that has to be
1: taken into account as well. Well, absolutely, but then if we get into the realm of legal action, then who knows where this is going to go? And I, I'm not suggesting that's where it's going, but uh, you know, all everything's on the table, I guess, at this stage.
3: I think there's still some pages to be turned for sure, Bill.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, turn the pages of the Bay Observer and you'll get the details on the story we just talked about. Check it out. And right. you can do it online, too, if you don't have a hard copy in front of you. John, always insightful stuff. Thanks so much for this today. You're very welcome. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.